0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality television, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, game shows, and much more from Shark Tank, to Below Deck, to Queer Eye, to Naked and Afraid, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I am your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15 year veteran producer of unscripted television. I've done shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, OutDaughter, The Rachel Zoe Project and Pros vs. Joes, among many others. Each week I talk to colleagues and talent who've made reality television and documentaries, not just something you watch on TV, but it's a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on believe.com and at Bleeve Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at All All right. Let's get started. My guest is an Emmy-nominated and award-winning director, writer, and producer with credits such as Blind Date, one of the all-time great unscripted shows, Top Chef, Katy Perry, Part of Me, Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, Wahlbergers, and McMillions, which I loved. He is currently the president of Unrealistic Ideas, the unscripted production company he formed with Mark Wahlberg and Steven Levinson. Please welcome Archie Gipps. Archie, how you doing, man?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me,
0: Steve. It's hmm. been an insane year. As a guy who is the president of a production company, how, how do you look at 2020?
1: It's, I mean, it's, you know, no one has ever experienced anything like this in our lifetime, right? And um, you have to kind of just reset the bar. And I could just tell you personally, I've never worked harder in my life. And not just because I'm president of a company, but because I'm also a dad with two children that are very young. I have a five year old daughter and a two year old son. So trying to multitask, I can't tell you how many times, Steve, I've been on a pitch where my two year old son will come crying in and I'll have to continue to the pitch. You know, that's just not (laughs) something you're used to dealing with when you're back in your office, you know? So to be focused and to be able to do, you know, my job well, not only to be a great president, to be a great father, which is really important to me, equally important to me. It's it's been very physically demanding. The hours are insanely long, but I'm not complaining. I embrace it, and I'm lo- I love what I do. So, you know, to me, it's not really work. It's just creating fun stuff and interesting projects. How have you adjusted? Just everything that
0: you do, whether it's tempering your expectations of the company or of your employees, how have you adjusted your mindset in terms of, you know, the output of the company, in terms of how many shows you sell, in terms of just what you get done in a day because
1: of the pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, like I said, I think we particularly at unrealistic ideas, and I think a lot of production companies we just doubled down on development. We specifically geared towards a lot more projects that were archival based, uh, similar to, you know, McMillian's had had some of that in it. We have several projects that are have a lot of archival materials. So you have to shoot less in the field. It's more about being in the edit bay. So we really did cater our slate towards that. And just trying to come up with ideas that that can be executed during this pandemic. And it's it's there's ebbs and flows to it all, and we're all hopeful that uh, it's behind us sometime next year. But realistically, it's gonna be with us for a long, long time and shifting your mindset into producing and developing shows that make sense. Uh, specifically, things that are gonna make people not worry and take their mind off the pandemic. Uh, those type that type of programming we've really doubled down on. And um, so yes, there there's across the board, it's completely changed how I look at my company, how I look at the industry and just, just every facet.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about that in terms of the type of shows that you're pitching. Um, You know, I've had this discussion with other people in terms of do, does the, does the audience want to watch things that are more feel good or get their mind off of the pandemic? Do they not want to watch things that are serious? Are you cognizant about that and saying, okay, We don't want to go down the path of developing things that are really serious. We want to lighten things up.
1: Well, we always, our company from the get-go, we always enjoyed stuff that had a comedic touch to it. So from even before the pandemic, we always leaned towards comedy and lighthearted materials. Uh, Mark, obviously, Mark Wahlberg, my partner, and Steve Levinson, those guys have a ton of stuff in the the comedic space and in, in the scripted side, I should say. And so... We always felt we le- we leaned towards comedic stuff. But truthfully, our company, what we look for are stories and people that if you hear about them or you meet these people, you're like, this should be a feature film. This should be a scripted TV show. Those are the stories that we go after. And it doesn't matter to us if it's true crime, if it's it's purely comedic, if it's uh, horror, whatever. If if it's a true story that we think has the potential to be a scripted feature film or a TV show, we want to make the documentary version of it, the doc series version of it, or even a formatted series off of that. And I think that speaks to our brand.
0: And a perfect example of that, right, is McMillions, an incredible true story that you guys took turned it into a six-episode documentary series for HBO, nominated for five Emmys, uh, just an incredible story. Um, and you guys did an excellent job along with James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, the directors on the project, uh, you know, really just breaking it down. And I loved the style of it. Um, I loved how it was laid out in terms of the storytelling. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of getting McMillions into Unrealistic?
1: Yeah, it's a crazy story, actually. So there was a article that uh, was written, I believe, in The Daily Beast, which talked about this amazing McDonald's monopoly scam. And it was being made into excuse me. It, 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 my good friend, Dave Colwans, was the guy, he's a producer. And what he does is he puts together, um, he takes stories that have kind of out of the zeitgeist that have happened many years ago. And he pairs up with the writer and they write stories and then they get them flipped into feature films. And so when that came out in the Daily Beast and a couple of days later, it was announced that that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were going to make it into a feature film. I was about to reach out to my buddy Dave and say, hey, I'd love to do the non-scripted version of this with my company. And before I could literally, my fingers could hit my, uh, my phone to text him, I get a text from my other buddy, who's Brian Lazarte, who, of course, is one of the co-directors and and writers and producers of McMillions. And he said, hey, can you get on the phone? I said, sure. He called me up and he said, look, we've been working, myself and James Lee Hernandez have been working on this project for a couple of years now. And we have all of these interviews, actually had three interviews with the FBI. They had the FBI on board. And they were concerned because there was this huge announcement of Damon and Affleck having the scripted version, and they thought that they were going to get screwed out of it. So I said, well, the only way you could beat uh, Damon and, and uh, Affleck is if you have Wahlberg. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so literally the next day, they came into my office. They showed me a, a four-and-a-half-minute, five-minute sizzle they had cut together, and I always said, look, guys, I'm not letting you leave my office until we make a deal. And it was it was great tape they put together. But I, I also had a couple of thoughts and comments that they agreed with to kind of change it up. And I said, we could absolutely sell this if we partner up together and we could beat them to the punch. You know, as you know, it takes several years to get a feature yeah. film going. We could get this thing going immediately and make a great a great project. And the thing that really put it over the top for them is, both those guys, so Brian is my has been my dear friend for a decade at least. And he's worked on several projects. He he was an editor I brought on when I produced the Katy Perry movie. He came on as one of the main editors. He did a brilliant job on that. And so we've have a, we have a great friendship. And I said to him, Look, Brian, you and James, you're amazing creatives. You've never gotten your shot at directing. I will, you know, and they wanted to direct this badly and they deserve to do so. And I said, I promise you, I will not sell. I will not allow this to be made without you guys directing it. Whoever we sell it to, we will make sure that you guys are approved. And, you know, obviously those guys are really talented and 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 they they did an amazing job with the conversations they had with the, the places we talked to. But yeah, it ended up that they were able to direct it and they're off and running now and they're amazingly talented people. And we hope to do more projects with them in the future. But from the get-go, we knew that it was an amazing project. Um, the story was just so surreal. The characters were just off the charts. And, you know, people don't realize that HBO bought it. We only really knew a couple of the people. We didn't know, you know, once we sold it to them and then they went back out in the field all these other characters started popping up. And then it just it became such an embarrassment of riches. They would call me up from the field literally on a nightly basis, being like, you're not going to believe this. We just this another great character and another great character. And it it quickly became one of those projects as it was happening. You just say to yourself, this is something special. You know, it's going to be special. And, and, and we're really fortunate that that was our very first project that we sold out the gate it was McMillian. So very tough act to follow, uh, having five <laughs> Emmy nominations for the first project you have, but uh, we, we've I think we've done a nice job with with the rest of the slate that we've put together. So, I applaud you
0: that you pushed for Brian and James to direct because I think that there's this impetus to, you know, have the established A-list documentary filmmaker put in place that, you know, the, the networks, the platforms all feel comfortable with. So I really applaud that. Um, I think you. that's really fascinating that the, the, the story wasn't complete. Can you talk a little bit about like the excitement and yet probably the nervousness that, OK, wow, these things are popping up as they go along. And maybe tell me some of the kind of craziness that was going on with the story um, as you guys were as it was unfolding.
1: Yeah, well, the story itself was crazy, and uh, all the credit goes to Brian and James, and James specifically found it, you know, way back in the day, and he put in the FOIA request to get the FBI on board and so forth, and they they paved the way for that, and they knew the story they wanted to tell from the get-go. What they didn't know were the characters that were going to pop up, and when they did pop up, it was like, oh my gosh, we now have to spend time with this person, we have to get to know them, you know, it really was... Everyone knew the big picture uh, of what went down with Uncle Jerry, but they didn't know these, these smaller characters along the way that really make McMillions sensational. Um, specifically, you know, Robin Columbo is just off the charts, amazing character. Um, you know, Jerry Colombo's uh, brother, uh, incredible Frank Colombo, he's an incredible character, and his wife, they're just, they're great characters. Doug Matthews, it goes without saying that was the one guy who was just off the charts, the FBI main agent, and that was my one note. You know, uh, Brian and James are so great to work with, and like I said, I have this history with Brian, so we were very collaborative putting together. The guys would put together the cards, and I would give my two cents as a storyteller and. You know, put my t- put my two cents in here and there, but the one note I kept giving them was more Doug Matthews, more yep. Doug Matthews, and they would try to cut some of it down. I said, please, guys, just every inch <laughs> of Doug Matthews we have, put it in. I love this guy, and so did Wahlberg. Wahlberg was absolutely in love with him, and uh, and Levinson as well. So, but but really, the mystery was was trying to find out in the field, and I don't want to blow it for people who haven't seen McMillions yet, but in the last episode, we reveal who who the person is who, who basically went to the FBI and told them about this, sting, this, this, this scam that was going on. And it's left until the last episode to reveal it. And they had no idea about any of that until they went out in the field and slowly but surely they started asking around. And then the one person that ends up being the, the snitch uh, as it were, confessed to it while they were filming and so that's kind of how we got to that so and i
0: i love that because i think so often we're pushed to you have to know everything before you enter the field and that's awesome that you were comfortable with sending the team out there and still kind of figuring things out and the hbo was comfortable with that and i love that because sometimes you get you know you find the best stuff when you're out there so oh yeah awesome. i
1: mean you have to be able to with 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 documentary film you have to give yourself the, the latitude to be able to find things in the field and you're going to find it all all in in the edit too you know that's why i absolutely love working with editors they are the lifeblood of of reality television of documentary film of all non scripted the lifeblood truly is the editor and so i i can't speak highly enough of all the editors that have worked on our projects many of them are my very good friends and that's where the secret sauce is to me is 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 in the edit
0: before you became the president of unrealistic you were a top-notch producer and i love the fact that your your career goes all the way back to the very kind of beginning ish <laughs> of reality yeah you know where i'm going Blind yeah, Date, Fifth Wheel, yeah. Chains of Love. You knew I was going to ask about this cuz again, like for for somebody, yeah, for our generation, like that was it, man. That was the beginning, you know, to come all the way from those early days to being, you know, on a on a project like McMillian's. When you look back on those early shows working with, you know, Jay Renfro and David Garfinkel of Renegade, yeah, yeah. the kind of yeah, I mean the those were revolutionary shows. What? How do you look back now on your experience on a show like Blind Date?
1: Thoroughly embarrassed. No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> uh, no, I loved it. I mean, David and Jay. I actually, I had uh, before the pandemic. Uh, David and I had uh, had breakfast together. We we uh, had a project that we went out together with Renegade and Unrealistic Ideas, that unfortunately didn't sell. But I, you know, David and I have a, a great relationship, and it was. Uh, the people that came out of that blind date team, again, not to pet, you know, break my own pen of myself on the back, but it was amazing people that were in that room that were original writers and producers for blind date. It was like five or six of us that have gone on to start our own production companies or have big production deals with, with you know, networks and so forth. So it was an amazing training ground. Um, and people to this day, you know, older people that know the show it was it's still a guilty pleasure of theirs and they always loved the show and it's one that people always love to talk when they see that that i worked on or they know that i worked on it they always have questions that they want to ask me about it but it was a lot of fun it was a big grind it was a daily show so we literally were working from 9 a.m to midnight six days a week i mean uh so it was it was a lot of work but again it was a lot of fun I just every time I think of the show, I, it reminds me. I was out at a bar one night, and I was talking to this guy. We're having a great conversation. I thought I knew him, from like, I couldn't remember how I knew him, but I thought I, I thought I knew him from like, high school or, or 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 college. I was trying to. I was in the bar, and I was like, I know you from somewhere. And he's like, Dude, you don't know me. And we we're talking. We we're having a couple of drinks. And finally it hit me like a, like a punch to the face. And I was like, oh my God, I know how I know this guy. And he's like, what, what, what do you, how do you know me? And I'm like, you were on blind date. And I was, I was your producer and I wrote, you know, the thought bubbles for you in the date. This guy was a big guy. He was a really big guy. And he turns to me and he goes, dude, you made me look like an asshole. And there's like a really big guy. And I'm like, Dude, you were an asshole. <sighs> and he just starts to crack up and he's like, you know what? You're right. I was. And the rest of the night he like bought me drinks and he was just joking about the whole date and how like how the date went south or whatever. But I just it, it was so surreal being like living in L.A. and being out and about and seeing these people that you were writing about their dates on, on Blind Date and then you'd see them out and about.
0: <laughs> there was a, a true like kind of raw magic to that show. Um,
1: and the, and the best thing that I, I could take, I could go out on dates and use it as a tax write-off because I was doing research for my job. <laughs> <laughs> that's golden. Yes, that is golden. Um,
0: so from blind date, you know, you really kind of evolved as a storyteller doing shows like top chef Braxton family values. And then you become, you know, you become a showrunner, an executive producer. Was there a moment, was there a show that you got that kind of led you down that path?
1: It's interesting. Um, One of the major shows I worked on was, um, it's funny enough, was Duck Dynasty, which, of course, was a tremendous hit. Yeah, I was I was brought on as a consulting producer to help work. That was a soft scripted reality show, as everyone knows. And I was brought on And My my dear friend, Mike O'Dare, is an Mm -hmm. amazing producer, and he he was. He was essentially, in my mind, the showrunner on that. I believe he was an EP. On, I don't know if he was technically the showrunner, but in my mind, you know, he was he was really the mastermind behind that show. And I, you know, by working on that show was the exact same time when it exploded. So people saw that on my resume, and even though I wasn't the one in control or whatever, they said, "Oh, you worked on, you know, Duck Dynasty," and yeah, that opened that opened some doors for me. But also, really, I would say the one that really made kind of vaulted me into like another stratosphere I guess you'd say quote unquote stratosphere (laughs) is um yeah the the Braxton family values because that show it you know I was a showrunner on that it did two things one it it showed that I could work with celebrity talent you know Tony Braxton and her family and also we really shaped that in the edit and turned it into a smash hit for, you know, WeTV. It became their flagship show. So I think that was the show that when when that came out uh, and was tremendously successful, I got a lot more people interested in working with me. And you have to remember, Steve, I come from a, a scripted background. You know, I went to NYU film school and I came out here in, to Los Angeles as as a screenwriter and actually wrote several screenplays. Um, I have a couple that were made into into movies and so forth. And so I come from a storytelling background and I think that really serviced me very well in reality because I was able to shape, I was able to use basic storytelling structure that I knew inside and out and was able to put that on top of non-scripted material to give it shape and form that helped a lot of these shows that were essentially non-scripted sitcoms. I and mean, yeah. that's really all Braxton family values and many like Chris knows best, which I didn't work on, but you know, those types of shows. And of course, sure. Wahlbergers, they are non-scripted sitcoms. And so um, my background as a, as a screenwriter and a sitcom writer really helped me tremendously in, in getting these positions.
0: I mean, that's kind of the way I see shows like, Racks of Family Values, like Wahlburgers. I mean, it really is. It's kind of reality sitcom.
1: A hundred percent. And I used to, you know, the real training round, this, this used to infuriate network executives because, you know, I would come in for an interview as a showrunner position and they would ask you, what, what show on your resume is the one that you, you know, really <laughs> speaks to who you are as a, yeah. as a showrunner? And I would say none of them. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? I, and I would say- I directed and wrote an independent feature film that by far and away had is the greatest training ground for being a showrunner. Yeah. and because you have to work on the fly. You have scripted material as independent filmmaker, but let's just say a location drops out or this or that. You've got to change it on the fly so it doesn't matter that it's if it's in a pizzeria or a shoe store, it doesn't matter. The story has to be told a certain way. And, and it's really just about the character development and the plot and the plot moving forward. And so that's that's how I look at all storytelling is clearly it's through, you know, through character and through plot development. And and I think being able to really be able to think quickly on the fly is what makes a great showrunner. And knowing story inside and out is the most important thing to be able to think quickly on the fly because you need to know what you really need or don't need. If something falls through, if someone doesn't show up, location drops out, all these things happen on literally a daily basis in, in the non-scripted, in non-scripted world. And to have that confidence that you could tell the story and not worry about or freak out that the location dropped out is really important yeah.
0: I think one of the other things that's really important on a show, whether you're talking about Braxton Family Values or Wahlburgers, is that even though you do, because of just the, the logistics of getting a celebrity family in the same place and organizing all their schedules, they still need to feel natural. Like everything needs to be natural. Can you talk a little bit about with Braxton Family Values, how you really kind of, you know, as a producer, made that feel like everything was natural, everything was organic? Well- you couldn't
1: help the, the the those are real sisters, right? You can't help but make it real. I mean, you put them in a room together; it's real. So it, they did the heavy lifting. It really was the storytelling, right? And it, what that entails is whether it's you know with with the Braxton family values or with Wahlbergers, it's having real conversations when you're plotting out what the stories are going to be at the, for for each season and having like for example the Wahlbergers, you know. I would I'd get together with Mark and I'd say, Hey, what's going on in your life right now? You know, what are you, what are you interested? In? What, what, what movies are you working on? Where are you gonna be traveling to? And I would build stories that were completely organic to what was really happening in their lives, you know, that would be on top of what we're tracking. And the same thing with, with, with the Braxton's, you know, they have real things going on in their life and we're tracking that, but if say, you know, tamar is working on an album, then we would want to clearly we'd want to document that, but we'd also want to have other storylines that are more personalized that could be attached to that. So, it's again, it's it's a soft scripted world. We never people always ask me, oh, you tell them that's reality TV, like you you wrote stuff for them to say, and I was like, no, I never did. I've never done that. The only thing I have done is we've set up situations where I've asked them, Hey, what are you doing? And then we've created a storyline from that, but we don't, I, I've never written dialogue for anyone. You know, that's right. just, that's not me yeah. as a producer. And I think that's a misnomer. I'm sure there are, there are pla- you know places that have done that, you know, duck dynasty, you know, border, they didn't write the, you know, those guys were incredibly funny. You sure. know, the Robertson's were incredibly funny, but um. You know, I, I personally don't write stuff for them, but it's just creating really entertaining, organic things that are happening in the lives of the people that, that we happen to be, you know, making the show about. And in the case of the Braxtons and, and of course, with, with Mark and the Wahlberg family, the truth is stranger than fiction, you know, Man. what's going on in their real lives was just crazy stuff, so.
0: And then moving on to Wahlburgers, talk a little bit about just how tough it was to kind of organize everybody, bring them together, just to kind of make that show. It wasn't just a show about one or two of them. It's a
1: big. It was a big show. Yeah, it's a big show. I used to joke with my friends. I've I have a bunch of friends that are very successful directors and very successful uh, scripted writers and showrunners. And I'd be like, you guys make like five times as much as me, but I'm basically <laughs> doing this. I'm doing the same job yeah. as you. I'm working yeah. with A-list talent, and I have no script, by the way. You could plot <laughs> everything out pretty easily. I have no script, yeah. right? So, um, and I, so, it it was a. I will tell you this: it was a very. Uh, the logistics of that show were incredibly difficult but it was by far and away the coolest and most fun I've ever had in a show because nice. the world that was opened up to me working with, you know, Mark and Donnie and Paul, there was just a lot of fun. They liked to have fun and there was just so many cool things I got to do. And that's the, that's the real blessing of being able to work in our industry. You know, you get every show that you work on there, there's, you know, you get the opportunity to, to, to meet new people and go to new places and, clearly with Mark, you know, he travels around the world and he's in these movies and well we have to document that, you know. I get Mark yeah. shooting in Paris, I guess we got to go to Paris <laughs> to shoot an episode, you know. And yeah. and and just being able to to document some of that stuff was was a really has been and it continues to be for me, you know, a really cool experience. But, you know, one one of my favorite um stories working with Walt, with at, on Wahlburgers was we were shooting an episode where well, Mark and Donnie, but specifically Mark, are the most competitive people I've ever met in my life. Just across the <laughs> board in everything. And yeah. if you watch an episode of Wahlburgers, there's an episode where he's playing touch football with his son, his son and and um and Paul's kid, and he's like full up. Mark is like full out like cheating to win the game, and it's like all real. <laughs> I mean, he's such a competitive yeah. guy, and I, that's why that's why I love him so much. He's just so competitive. So. We were there. There's an episode where we're filming the Wahlburgers softball team is going to play against Tasty Burger, which is a real burger chain that's based in Boston, that they don't like each other, Wahlburgers and Tasty Burger. And so they challenge them (laughs) to a softball match. And so, of course, Mark being Mark is like, well, we got to play this in Fenway. And I'm like, oh, my my gosh. So we had to logistically go to Major League Baseball. We had to work on dealing with the Red Sox. It was a logistical nightmare. And the biggest thing for them was like, you cannot, the field has to be in perfect condition when the Red Sox play. So you have X amount of hours to shoot. It has to be on this day and only this day. And by the way, if it it rains, you can't do it because it will mess up the field. It's completely canceled. So (laughs) the night before the shoot, I go to Mark and I'm like, hey, it's a hundred percent chance of rain. It's not like 99 or 80 (laughs) percent. It's a hundred percent. And it's a hundred percent for like the entire day. You know, like you go on your like iPhone, it's like the whole day. And I'm like, Mark, we got to like figure out, we want to do this as a basketball game. We'll go to a gym or something and we'll play tasty burger in a gym. And he's like, no dude, like we're playing softball, man. Like I want to beat them in softball and Fenway the next morning. It's still, it's like drizzling. And it's supposed to come really hard down. And I go, Mark, can we can we please like get into this like get a gym somewhere he goes dude i'm telling you right now it is not going to rain i'm like mark it's first of all it's drizzling right now second of all it's supposed to be a 100 percent chance of rain he's like dude it's not gonna rain we get to the field the skies clear up nice we shoot this thing for two and a half hours the second we stop the game the c- clouds come and it starts to pour it was the most surreal thing yep. I've ever seen. Like Mark was like, I promise you. And somehow it didn't rain. But yeah, no, it was it was, it was was a logistical nightmare. You know, the family, the, you know, Donnie Wahlberg is, is one of the busiest guys in show business between, yeah. I mean, a great guy. But, you know, he's, he's in New Kids on the Block. He's on Blue Bloods. He had his own, you know, non-scripted show with Denny, Donnie Loves Jenny, which I also worked on. So he had all this stuff going on and and trying to like get them in the same time and place and it was it was again it was a challenge but like I said it was it's you're making we're making TV shows that are supposed to pe- make people laugh and smile so if we're not having fun doing it then we're in real trouble for sure dealing with celebrity talent
0: is something that you know in unscripted right like all the networks all the platforms love to get their hands on A-list talent you have, you know, managed yeah. to be really successful with that, whether it's uh, Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, whether it's Katy Perry, pardon me, whether it's the Braxtons right. and and obviously with Wahlbergers. Is there is there yeah. a style that you have? What what right. do you do to kind of bring out the best in, in celebs?
1: I think I mean, the one thing I think I do is I just give honest feedback to people. You know, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a straight shooter and. And I think a lot of these guys, you know, Mark and Donnie aside, but I mean, or, or included, but other people too, that I've worked with and I, they, they're surrounded by so many yes men and people that it's like for you to just like be honest with them and say, Hey, I need this or this. I think they appreciate that. And it's like, they respect it. And um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very respectful of them and and their time and, and uh, gracious and, but I also make sure that they hear my own they hear my voice and I have my own opinion and, and I let them hear it, you know, and, and it's done in a very collaborative way. A lot of the times you don't get your way because the schedules are crazy or what have you, but I always try to let my voice be heard just so I know that I got it out there and I did the best of what I could. And like I said, a lot of the times I think they respect that and, 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 and they respond well to that. And, you know, especially now with unrealistic ideas, we have a ton of you know, superstars and A-level people we're dealing with, and I, you know, we're we're in development with a lot of things, or trying to pitch things with other other folks, and um, never a dull moment. But it, it's really it's really cool and fun to be able to have conversations with these folks, and some are a little kookier than others, but um, <laughs> you know, always respectful of, of everyone I'm dealing with. Now that
0: you are the president of Unrealistic Ideas, you are a partner yeah. with Mark Wahlberg. You said yeah. he is the most competitive person <laughs> that you know. Yeah. Is there a stress? You know, being a showrunner, I'm sure was stressful on yeah. his show.
1: How stressful is it to be his partner? Well, to Mark's credit, Mark is the type of guy who, being around him, you want to work hard for him. He doesn't say, dude, what are you doing? Bust your ass. You want to do it. You know, every time I jump on the phone with Mark, The very first thing he says to me is, Hey, how is your how are your kids doing? How is Wally? How are Lucy? How is your wife? Seriously. He really cares about my family and he's he's a great guy like that. And even I'll and I'll like sometimes I'll jump on the phone with him, like, hey man, like I I got a question about this thing. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How is the kid? How are the kids? You know, he's always like that. So, but I will I would I would be lying, Steve, if I didn't say the stress level is a thousand times more being president and a partner in a company than being a showrunner, because you could always, you know, yeah. I mean, being a showrunner, you always could hide behind the production company that you're dealing with or (laughs) the network or whatever. I now have to oversee, you know, there's probably around 70 projects on our slate in various forms of development, pre-production, production, production, post-production. It is, um, it is highly stressful, especially when you're working out of home. My wife is, you know, yeah. a professional. She's a lawyer. We're both working out of home with our two kids screaming around. That obviously doesn't help with the stress level, but to be very candid with you, most of the fun that you have as a showrunner is gone when you're running a company. The beauty of being a showrunner is you're out in the field. It's like being at summer camp. When you're in the field, you all get together, yep. you're working together, yeah. you're making a show. It's like a team, you know, and, 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 And you don't have, I don't have that anymore. My days are now dealing with like, you know, dealing with the networks and legal issues and Zooming and trying to get more business drummed up. And again, I do not want to sound like a complaining because it's been a tremendous (laughs) learning experience and I love my job, but the fun factor is not there. The the creativity is, you know, half of what it was as a showrunner when you just purely only care about making best show possible now i have to put out and oversee a lot of things that are quite honestly just not fun to do but are necessary there's two projects that have been my oh my god my my passion projects for years years now and one of them is going to be moving forward it's a tremendous project i always wanted to direct it and and run it and i can't do that and i'm and i'm you know happily going to give it to someone else who's a very talented director but I don't have the bandwidth to do that. I would not be doing the company. You know, I'd be doing the company a major disservice at this time. If I were to do that, maybe in like three or four years when we have more infrastructure, that will be possible. But many people, when they see, oh, like Mark Wahlberg and Steven Levinson, these guys are huge in the scripted space. I mean, they're they're literally some of the two of the biggest producers in Hollywood. And obviously, Mark is an international movie star. But we're a small startup company. I mean, we are a small startup company. We have, I believe right now eleven employees. you know, so when you compare us to like like you mentioned earlier, like Dave and Jay at Renegade or IPC or some of these other places, you yeah. know, we are tiny in comparison. but we're a full service production company. So we have, you know, a, a dozen editing bays and we own all our gear. and so um it's it's we're scrappy, you know, we're we're scrappy. we're doing a lot of work, but I, I think that, we have that, there's that misconception that because it's Mark and Lev, yeah. it's like, we've got a hundred people on our payroll. It's just not the case.
0: I think that's actually, that's absolutely true. And I'm sure that you deal with that, that people think, oh, well, Archie can sell anything because he's got Mark and he can just put in a call and Mark can put in another call and you'll have five celebrities on the show as EPs, or you can have the cast of your dreams, Right. Is that tough? Probably you have friends calling you up, Archie. I got an idea. Is that part of you know part of the stress? (laughs) Yeah, it's not
1: just my friends. Like my brothers are calling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: That
1: that. Look, I. That doesn't really add to the stress as much because I I like to think I'm a very fair person that is willing to look at anyone's idea. And even as a showrunner, we would have like group meetings and talk about the creative on a show and the PAs, I would be like pitch ideas. I don't care where good ideas come from. It's going to help the show. So it's the same thing. Like I wasn't joking. My brother literally pitched me a show like the other day and I'm like, that's a pretty damn good idea. And so we might end up developing it. So a good idea could come from anyone. And I'm always open to hearing ideas from literally anyone, but the majority of the time what they're going to hear is, We've already tried that or, you know, it's we need exactly what you said, Steve, like you can't pitch us like, oh, here's a great format. We're going to do a show where, you know, Mark's going to go and we're going to get 10 of the world's strongest men and they're going to jump out of a building. You know, it's like, great. (laughs) You got to get us those guys like we can certainly use Mark's name to get people interested. We do have a bunch of people that Mark is friends with, that we are developing shows with that are celebrities, you know, specifically sports athletes and musicians. So that that is a huge thing that we have going for us with Mark's personal connections. But we still need, you know, to cast these things, especially if it's a show that's based on casting celebrities. It's a format that you have to cast. That's real tough, you know, because that's something where you know, and everyone has that problem, even us. You know, we could sure. get maybe one person on board, but you can't get like eight people, you know, if you have to cast out a whole <laughs> yes. season, so. Yeah. In January, Discovery
0: Plus will be launching. Um, yes. We just, you know, yeah, we just fi- found out, you know, some of their early shows that'll be coming out. And so they are joining a very crowded field. So come January of 2021, we will have Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Peacock, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, Disney Plus, Apple TV, and I think Paramount Plus. I don't know if CBS All Access has become Paramount Plus yet, but it, it will be soon. I may have forgotten Snapchat and you still have Facebook Watch. So the streaming wars are, you know, really underway here. You know, and and Discovery Plus, you know, that they, apparently they'll have uh, you know, a five dollar a month with with ads and then seven dollars uh ad free. So Archie, how do you see Discovery Plus playing in this kind of war zone of streamers? Well,
1: let me, first of all, when, when is this going to air? <laughs> what the, because well, uh, we'll probably have four more new streamers by yeah. the time uh, you know this airs. I got my own.
0: Um, I, the, yeah, I'm gonna have my own. Yeah, there you stream, go. I was gonna say. Kidding. Yeah,
1: I anyway, Just add a plus to it. Archie Plus yeah. is, is going to be the new streamer. <laughs> Steve, Steve, Steve Plus. Yeah, um, there you go. Look, I just. Well, i should preface this with i believe we have a show that will be going to discovery plus (laughs) so um i love it from the standpoint that it's just a great uh place for non-scripted content to go to um another buyer i i was very sad to see quibi go yeah Uh, we had one project on quibi not i know a lot of places sold several projects but you know, we need we need as many buyers as possible. Um, do I think that they could all sustain? Uh, no, but I think that Discovery Plus has is really smart about what they're doing and how they're positioning themselves is truly no scripted material whatsoever. And they're relying heavily on the non-scripted world. And I think that they're going to lean in heavier and heavier into premium documentaries, which is our forte. So as a seller, you know, I'm thrilled about this discovery plus because it's another premium content buyer for our, you know, projects. Um, I do think I'm, I'm old school when it comes to, I mean, I, I, I'm remembering, you know, back in the day when, you know, your cable bill is like $170, right? Like remember if you get like the HBO package (laughs) and all this stuff, it's like 150 a month or something. Right. Yeah. So let's just say, you get, let's just round things up. It's $15. You know, obviously discovery plus is less. Some of these are less, but let's just call it, let's just say across the board it's 10 bucks. Some are more expensive. Some are cheaper per streamer. So if you yeah. get 15 of them, it's 150 bucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's exactly. so not that bad. Exactly. Yeah, ultimately I, I think the ones that have the back catalog are really the ones that are going to do, the best, and if I'm going to make one bold prediction that we could go back and laugh at years from now, or say, "Oh my God," Archie was right. I very much can see Apple and Netflix merging at some point, mm. or basically Apple taking over Netflix.
0: That would make sense. Apple has no library;
1: they need yes, exactly. They need the library, yeah, and they obviously yeah. I mean, and, and, they, and what does Netflix need? Money, right? Money. And what does Apple yeah, have? They need? What money. money. So, and they've got money. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. yeah, it's a good it's a good point. Um all right, so I wanted to ask you about 2021. We're headed into the new year. What are you yes. excited about um business-wise? What are you excited about creatively as you and the company head into 2021?
1: We have I'm, I'm I'm very excited. I mean, we have a few projects that are in production right now that'll be coming out in 2021. Um a few things that should be sold between now and February um, that we're extremely confident of. I can't really get into the specifics of them. They're premium documentary series that I think people will really dig. We've got a few projects that are true crime, that are comedic, true crime in the vein of McMillions uh, crazy stories. The thing that really was great for us is that once McMillions was out there, we did another true crime story that fell under the radar, which was called Run This City because it was on Quibi. So not many people saw it, uh, unfortunately, because not many people had Quibi. But um, that got nominated for an IDA award. So if you had told me one of our projects was going to nominate for an IDA and it wasn't McMillions, I would have told you you're crazy. (laughs) But that's another project that we're expanding um, that's going to be coming back and we're to expand that that's an incredible story um as well i'm just excited about you know getting a vaccine and getting out in the world again you know yeah and uh you know kind of getting back to normal i know it's gonna be a very slow process but um you know we really i've really been hunkered down in my bunker here doing zoom chats you know steve i mean so much of this industry is based on going out and having you know happy hour drinks or, or lunch with folks and being face to face. And that's really how you um, make connections and bond with people sure. and, 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 and sell a lot of it, you know, get to know people. And that's really what this town is all about is the relationship. So having to work over zoom and, and deal with things that way has, has been a struggle, you know, it's not as personal Um, It definitely makes things much more efficient. You don't have to drive all around town for meetings and so forth. But it definitely takes away that special face-to-face. But um, 2021 is, in our our eyes, is very bright. We've got a couple of really cool sports projects, uh, docu-series. Like I said, true crime. Some really big formats that we're going to be coming out and pitching. And uh, hopefully those sell. Those are always the trickiest ones. You know, There's highly repeatable formats. Sure. Big budgeted ones that you could sell to networks or some of the premium streamers. So always always optimistic, but always a realist as well that it's a grind. You're not going to lie. You know it. I know it. <laughs> yeah. Selling things is a grind. It's a grind. And even if Mark Wahlberg is your partner uh, and Steve Levinson is your partner, it's still a grind.
0: Of course. Yeah. You mentioned pitching on Zoom. So I wanted to see because I've been taking something out lately and just, it is so hard to know if you're connecting with the network executives because you're just, you're just by yourself staring into that. do you, you know, and you've got kids running into the room. Yeah. How, how insane has it been for you, you know, to be
1: pitching big projects over a zoom God's honest truth. My wife is, you know, works, like I said, as well. So she was on a very important Zoom. I was on important Zoom pitching. My son came in screaming, crying. I had to change his diaper, literally wipe his ass during a pitch while I was talking. And (gasps) it was surreal. But um, I think people give you a lot of leeway. You know, everyone understands we're kind of all in this together. And, you know, they see my son and he's cute and stuff, but it's very hard to focus. I agree with you a thousand percent. It's impossible to read the room. You could almost tell like they're looking at their emails or look, you know, when they're multitasking while they're on the Zoom with you. Or at least when you were face to face with them, you know, you could clearly tell if they're looking at their phone or not when they're in the room with you. But you have no idea if they're truly paying attention or not. Um, Definitely not. They're not um, absorbing the the sizzles and the decks beforehand as much as they used to. Because they're bombarded. Everyone's bombarded right. with Zooms now. So it's a way of life. I do think a lot of from what I've heard, a lot of the the networks and places, you know, not until May of next year are they even gonna be considering going back into their offices. Right. So, you know, there's several we're talking about at least five to six more months of of Zoom meetings for sure. And even then I'm sure it's gonna be much limited much more limited face to face meetings and relying more on Zoom. I personally think that networks probably enjoy um, the Zooms and I think that the, the sellers like ourselves are the ones that need to, you know, prefer the face to face. I miss the like interaction and the, the
0: smiling and
1: seeing people and Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And it's based, again, it all comes down to like the relationships, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's very hard if you don't have a previous relationship with someone you're pitching it's 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 impossible to like become friendly with someone over Zoom. It just is.
0: I always like to uh, end the show with uh, just anything that you're watching. Um, do you recommend anything? Is there anything from Unrealistic that you want the audience to watch? Um, anything that may be coming out in early 2021 mm-hmm. that you want people to watch? Um, just anything
1: that you think is worth watching. It's funny because I'll tell you something. I... I watched just enough. I need to be compelled by something to continue to watch it. Cause as you know, I left, you know, something out, which is probably important for my job. Not only are we, you know, trying to sell, we are almost like a buyer because so many people come to us trying to get Mark attached to projects. We constantly are spending so much time. So I'm watching so much material that people are bringing to pitch us that so much of my time is taken up that I usually, when I'm watching stuff, it's highly recommended things that come from my friends or um, and now you're, I'm gonna have to ask you for highly recommended. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'll only watch just enough and if it doesn't capture me right away, I'll stop watching it. Like, I will tell you this, I've never watched Tiger King. And wow. and not because obviously it was beloved and it was a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. but. I knew that um, it was six or seven hours of something. And I already got kind of pieced. The- I watched five minutes of it. And I said, I'm not going to watch any more of it because I knew what it was going to be. And I wanted that time to work <laughs> instead. Does that make yeah. sense?
0: That makes 100% you know?
1: sense. Your dad.
0: There are some series that I do the exact same thing. I can watch 10 minutes. I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a four-part doc series on the Heaven's Gate cult, and I watched the first ten minutes, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." (laughs) And and I was done. I'm like, "Yeah, I get it. They were the sneakers, and they thought they were going to outer space, and then they all yeah." It was like the Haley's
1: Comet. Is Haley's Comet or something? Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: They all thought they were going to space, and then they all committed
1: suicide. And spoiler alert: they all they all committed
0: suicide. And and now I don't
1: have to watch. I gravitate towards my downtime. It's like okay, I'm gonna watch an episode of of something. You know, usually it's comedic. You know, an HBO like Curb or something. You know, just to yeah. get my head right. But uh, exactly like you, like I I'm so critical. And again, I don't want to be mean, but I watched like on HBO Max. They had Clash Class Action Park. Yes. Um, I don't know yes. if you saw that or not. I, you did. Know? I did. I did. Yes. I grew up about an hour and a half from Action Park, and I went there as a kid. When I was a little kid, I went there. Okay, and um, and I watch it, and it's like people are raving about it, and I'm like, it was okay. I'm very critical about documentaries, and so that's why. Hopefully, when you see an unrealistic ideas documentary, you're gonna go, okay. Well, Archie's a critical son of a bitch, so hopefully, it's past that bar, you know. (laughs) And uh, that that you know, and I'm like you, like I'm not. I can't invest the time in something if it doesn't pull me in right away, which is why it's a tremendous compliment to me that you gave the time for McMillions, you know, because that it, it, to, to, to ask an audience member to devote, you know, that amount of time to something and keep them, you know, riveted to it, 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 it means a lot. And so we always try to, in every project we do, the, the content needs to speak to the length of the content. If it's a two-hour doc or five or six or three-parter, it has to speak to the archival and the characters you have. You know, yeah. it can't, I'm not a big fan and I, I will not do it. of dragging things out. People, you know, again, not to keep going on here, but one of the criticism of McMillions, I, I went online and of course, like everyone else against like social media, like, Oh, they could have done this in two hours, man. Yep. I go, yeah, you could have done it. You could have done it in 30 minutes, but we wanted people to see these characters, these large in life characters and spend time with them and get to know them and spend time and, you know, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of what Brian and James you know, did with that because we we're able to tell a story and tell it through all of these characters. Any story can be told in 10 minutes or six sure. hours. It just depends if it's going to be shit or great. You know, When you try to get that yeah. happy medium where you think you have a time, you're allotting the right amount of time for it. I think people just have a, have a voracious appetite for great characters. And I think that the more archival you have that's incredible behind the scenes footage that could tell this story that's as long as the project should be you know as long as you can entertain with that but if you only have 10 minutes of archival footage and you make it into 10 you know 10 episodes it's probably stretching it too thin
0: agreed archie gibbs i want to thank you uh for being my guest on no script no problem
1: steve thank you hopefully uh I said some things that made some sense and were enjoyable. 2020, I've been in a daze uh, based on everything I've told you with my kids and my work. But I appreciate you having me on and uh, best of luck to you and uh, hope to have a cocktail with you, uh, a vaccine and tequila cocktail when, once uh, we're in 2021.
0: Really appreciate the time.
1: Thanks, man. Take care.
0: All right, that's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. Now, for everybody listening, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at bleed.com and at bleed podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question and I will answer it on the show. Email those questions to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact bleed at Believe.com. Thank you to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio connection. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem.